Welcome to the 11th episode of Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics. The joke's on us, though, because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, and in fact must use them. And I'll let you in on all the rules, but first let's welcome my guest with which to create a line of books based on Who's Who number 11. It's David Gallagher. Welcome to the show, David. Well, thank you so much for having me, Siskoid. I am super excited about this. You're a bit different from the other guests in that you actually make a living writing, among other things, comics. Uh, yeah, I do. I write, uh, I've written Green Lantern and a little bit of Incredible Hulk and uh, The Winter Guard for Marvel, soon to be featured in the Black Widow movie. And uh, yeah, and I used to write the Marvel handbooks back in the day. So oh. I'm, I'm pretty good at really obscure comic book character lore. <laughs> and now you you get to pitch your own. I mean, you've pitched projects. Obviously, you've pitched projects right. uh, for, for real. This is the fake one. I hope you don't feel like you're wasting your energy on a, on a false project. Oh, no, no. I like to think of this as like a warm-up. Uh, so now I'm going to, after I've pitched all these, I'm going to have all this confidence. It's sort of like stretching before marathon. Okay. Was it challenging? Were there any like real challenges in this <laughs> issue? Be- there were some challenges based on the rules that I, I if I'm going to be honest, I flaunted a little bit there towards the end. I think will be interesting. What's tough here is that, there, I mean, this is the issue with all the Johnnies. Yes. So there are a lot of similarly named characters, a lot of non-superhero characters. That we, we have to make, I don't know, marketable yep. in a way. I got it, though. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. I, for myself, this was probably one of the hardest yet, but it may be because I'm doing all of them. And now, I'm you know, there's a fatigue is setting in because I was like, oh, this is a good idea for this character. Uh, damn, I kind of used that that idea already, you know, on a past episode. So it's kind of hitting me now. So one more time, here are the rules. Each episode of Who's Editing will go by. Our line of books must include a monthly series for every hero character or team featured. We can give a villain or other entry their own series if we absolutely feel the need to, but we can only name a single villain from the issue to receive that honor. So imagine we're coming back from some crisis or other so we can reboot characters or use any continuities version. And, you know, it's up to us. Titles don't have to match the entries or else they'll be called Johnny. Note that uh, we are each pitching our own ideas. So we'll sort of end up with two possible lines of books. And listeners, you decide which books you'd actually want to read. And we'll actually play that game too as we'll have just enough money to buy one title from the other editor's line. I'll be taking notes, I guess. So tell me, David, did you have a strategy going into this? Yes. My strategy was uh, what would make a good comic. Okay. Well, that's a very good strategy. So there's no overarching theme or anything Uh, like that. I mean, there is – as you get into it, you can see that I I definitely tried to to push the boundaries. But no, the overarching theme was like would I read this. If the answer was yes, then I was like – Awesome. No real strategy for me either. No grand design. I see it as DC has done another new 52. I'm in charge of 22 books. Other people are glutting the market with 30 Batman, Superman, or Justice League books, presumably. You know, it's, it's that's all it is. So with issue 11 of Who's Who, we have to include a minimum of 22 books in our line and a maximum of 23. David, I'm going to hand it off to you first. And we'll do a bit of back and forth in entry order, but we'll keep our bonus villain series for the end. 
All right. All right. So the first one here is, uh, we have to skip over Icicle. He's a villain. So Immortal Man is our first pitch. Well, so Immortal Man, his powers are that he constantly, if he dies, he just comes back to life. It's very similar to, in a way, Marvel's Mr. Immortal. Uh, his arch enemy in the comics, based on his debut in whatever, Strange Adventures, is Vandal Savage. And uh, this art here by uh, Dennis Cohen and Eduardo Barreto has a very James Bond feel to it. So what I thought we would do is do a um, almost like an Arsene, uh, like uh, Maurice LeBlanc, Arsene Lupin sort of take where I don't know if you're familiar with those novels, but they were contemporaries sure. to Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Lupin the Third is, is largely based on this. So what I did was I really structured the idea around in those novels, Lupin has to solve like the seven secrets of ancient Europe. And so that was kind of the idea here is basically like a questing book. Vandal Savage is stealing periods of time and selling them off to the highest bidder. He's literally taking centuries. He calls it the crime of the centuries. And he's literally using uh, magic and spells to literally sell off innovation and give it to other cultures. So here, here uh, you are a third world country. I have literally taken, I've sucked all the innovation and creativity from the Renaissance and I've given it to you. So uh, Immortal Man has to solve that in a daring uh, espionage tale that literally spans five millennia. I like that a lot. Of course, Arsène Lupin being a French figure is, of course, known to me. There's a new TV series, actually, a new from France, uh, where there's a Lupin. Is it like a modern day one? Yeah, he finds uh, he finds the uh, Lupin's book and then yeah. he decides to yeah take on that persona. So I'm taking my cue from a very different source, from Buck Rogers in the 25th century. In a way, where the point to me was that as we evolve socially and ethically, we become vulnerable to outside aggression or to those who haven't so evolved. So the Immortal Man series has story arcs in different eras, but mostly in the present day or DC's various future timeframes. And only he can solve a problem by remembering some skill that's by then outdated. And I'm also giving him Skaroth's powers from uh, Doctor Who's City of Death, which is that he is in uh, telepathic contact with past selves. So he can ask them to do stuff like, you know, bury an item in a certain spot or that won't be disturbed for a thousand years, etc. And since the line will have a lot of characters living in other times, we've got war characters, we've got Western characters in this, characters whose lives or legacies also span the centuries, as we'll see. It's a good bet Immortal Man will remember having teamed up with them so we can tell those stories. So he's kind of the glue that holds the line together on my end. In terms of tone, I want this to poke fun at the fact that he's a man from the past, that he's retrograde. So it's a little bit of a takedown of that sort of macho posturing hero that used to be the norm. He kind of thinks he's hot stuff, but the people in the current era are way over it. You know, thanks for saving the day, dude, but you're kind of insufferable. He's the Gil Gerard Buck Rogers. He's that character, like the 80s, the late 70s macho hero. It's nice. Like yours, which has a more of a time travel element in a way. But I think we're both going at it from a very similar angle, but mm -hmm. differently. And we're almost opposite angle. Let's see what we do with the Inferior Five. My series, I changed the name. It's called Inferior 500. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's a comedy version of Marvel's in the, the Initiative, I'd say. It's about a network of B, C, and Z-list heroes organized into teams all over the world by Merry Man. He's a sort of at the head of this. The message is that um, alone, we're inferior to what we are together. 
but Merry Man's just not very good at branding. <laughs> Uh, so from story arc to story arc, we jump from one of a hundred quintets to another, bringing back every obscure and failed hero of the DC universe, whether they were comedy characters like the guys in Hero Hotline or, or not. I, you know, I'm sure DC was serious about all those blood pack characters. So I, I'm also making use of a lot of Dial H for hero characters from the Robbie Reed and the Chris and Vicky eras, as if to say the kids turned into actual, but kind of local, regional heroes. In fact, one of my main figures would be Zeb the Living Sponge, who started out as a Dial H hero created by uh, Stefan Stefano, and so wound up on Hero Hotline's Night Shift. So he's kind of proof of concept that these heroes existed somewhere, and the kids were sort of tapping into it through their Heroverse. Uh, the Red Bee would also be in this one. You know, characters like this. So it's, uh, it's a comedy series. I think it's in the Bwahaha Justice League mold with a revolving cast, but it's a sitcom. It's a sitcom with with high stakes, with normal superhero stakes. That's interesting. Uh, you have a very similar take, but totally different. Okay. I called mine the inferior 52 because DC has a big thing for 52. And <laughs> yeah. each week it would feature a mort starting with Mary Man. And it would feature a different mort of the DC universe and try to give them a little bit of credence and a little bit of love. You might get the Red Bee or you might get any of the characters from uh, like Space Cabbie, for instance. So each one of them would just get their their moment in the spotlight. And then just a singular issue that is designed to create emotional appeal and make any of these characters somebody's favorite. But it literally would be a weekly anthology series where it's uh, just one week. It's it's Merry Man. One week it's Stump Bunny. One week it's uh, Awkward Man. One, one week it is, uh, like I said, Space Cabbie. So that's the... That's sort of the idea that I would do. I think we're both lovers of obscure characters. Every character is the hero of their own story. So there's an opportunity. I think we're, we're coming about it a very similar way, but I like the idea that we can take even the most inferior character and give them some air and let them, and let them be real fleshed out characters. Speaking of inferior characters, I'm kidding. Uh, we're we're going to talk about Infinity Inc. And I sort of wanted to poke the bear. <laughs> uh, so Infinity Inc., this is one the bigger group. In this issue, I think, this is the big team that had its own series, but they've sort of fallen out of favor since. So I'm wondering what you will do with them. Oh, I, this is awesome. So I'm actually going to make it a corporation. So it's called Infinity Inc. And it's also like, what's it called? 23andMe. So basically, Infinity Inc. has DNA samples of all the Golden Age heroes. And we follow a main character who looks for the heirs of these things. And you can be like, take a sample DNA test, and you can be like, oh, I'm a third obsidian and part silver scarab. And you develop powers that way. And it's kind of fun to follow characters as they figure out their ancestry and how they're connected to the Infinity Incorporated. That's a good idea to use that incorporated, which is kind of an odd element to put in a superhero team name. Right. So you sort of uh, solve that mystery. <laughs> for me yeah so and why not have yeah so that way you can really deal with like who owns superhero genomes uh, why are they collecting all of these and really deal with that aspect of legacy you know in a way going back all the way to you know like the golden age and, and different eras because i always think it's weird especially with infinity inc and a little bit with modern takes of the justice society is like my son gets the same powers as me i'm like really really your son gets the same powers as you. How about your daughter gets different powers? Like, it, it just seemed too on the nose. And what I was really hoping for was a little bit more variety. And I think that 
having a corporation have different DNA samples gives them an opportunity to also, as a subplot, create their own army. That is that is the best of Brainwave Jr. and the best of Fury and the best of Northwind and the best of Nuclon without being necessarily direct heirs of these characters. So that was basically it. It is 23andMe meets the JSA. You latched onto the incorporated element. I latched onto the Hollywood studio setting for this one. Uh, so it's a book that seems to take place on Earth Prime. Uh, Earth Prime is kind of like our world in that it doesn't have real superheroes, but it is fascinated with superhero movies. And Infinity Inc. is what you get after all the big heroes have had their, their end game. And the studio is trying to look for new faces and new heroes for Phase 4 or wherever we are. You know, they've retired the Justice Society of America series of films. What's next? So now it's their kids and legacies in the movies. And we're following the actors having just get cast. And they're making this movie. And then weird stuff seems to happen that blends the comic book universe with the real world. And members of Infinity Inc.'s either start exhibiting powers or find themselves in a world of the world of the film or, or the many worlds of superhero films. We can maybe satirize the business and the style of it in a Deadpool kind of way. But in the second year, the heroes might in fact have been integrated into Earth One proper, but they'll still remember their old lives and they, they'll kind of be like us if we somehow found ourselves on the page Uh, finding it absurd that, you know, that we don't age at the same rate anymore, etc. And a meta element to this, but it speaks uh, more to the the superhero movie craze than it does comics themselves, but I think it's it'll be a hybrid of that. Okay, interesting. So you are now on Infinity Man, correct? Infinity Man, uh, my question is whether Infinity Man only exists when the Forever People bring him into existence, or if he is called to their location from somewhere else. So for the series, the series called Don't Call Infinity Man. And I've chosen uh, the latter explanation, that he is called there. Infinity Man is like a big Kirby hero. He's having epic adventures in what I'm going to call the Kirbyverse. He's fighting evil. He's falling in love. He has this whole life. But then he gets pulled to the Forever People to save their bacon, and usually at the worst possible time for him. And only by doing so is he returned to his universe. But time doesn't move at the same rate there, maybe. Or, or he might not be returned at the exact same spot. So maybe the bad guys won because he missed the climax of his own adventure. Or, or he has to track down his wife and kids, uh, but they've moved on with their lives. And off he goes on another adventure, dreading the next time he feels the call. Interesting. So I went a different direction. I called the book Infinity with an I instead of a Y. Okay. And it is about a young, a non-binary character who has weirdly mother box DNA in their system. And over time, like it's, it's like wired as part of their DNA. And what you find out is that they are actually, they can summon the powers of the Infinity Man and transform however they want to into in, like super superhero thing. But they find out that the Infinity Man is actually a legacy that is actually the, the sentient version of uh, Mother Box. So it's like a cool thing. It's like, what, what if a Mother Box was sentient? And what would their children look like? And that's basically it. It's, the, it's sort of a weird postmodern Frankenstein, Pinocchio sort of thing going on. All right. Next up is... Well, Insect Queen, but I gave you the option. Since this is really Lana Lang, you could do a Lana Lang book. She's never had her own book. 
You could do a Lana Lang book. So what have you chosen? Well, I chose Lana Lang and the city of Smallville. So basically it's, it's Marvel's. But through Lana Lang's eyes as she documents young Superboy and all the weird things, sort of like eerie Indiana, all the weird things that have happened in Smallville, both before Superman arrived and afterwards. From her perspective. So in a, in a way, uh, it might be similar to what we've seen in Smallville. That show's almost 20 years old, right? Yeah. Uh, Smallville or um, the new Lois and Clark show or Superman and Lois show. But the idea that we're investigating not just – I'm like, what is it that made the rocket land in Smallville of all places? Was it – did it happen to be luck? And that's what Lana Lang has to investigate. Okay. I did pick Insect Queen. It's still Lana. Lana, but as Insect Queen. So powers-wise, she's more like Animal Man or Vixen for me. No weird transformations per se. But as in the original story, Lana helps – not Abinsur, whoever, that alien, and is given a magic ring. And later she becomes a glamorous anchor woman at WGBS News, straight out of the right. Bronze Age. But she has a secret life as the insect queen. And no one knows who she is, not even Superman, because the ring creates a glamour or a perception filter that makes people unable to recognize her. So in a bit of Silver Age reversal, Clark is very curious as to who Insect Queen is, and she loves... To tease him about it, you know, <laughs> he'll never know. So we don't use Superman much, but we play Clark Kent as an important supporting cast member, but she's having these adventures in Metropolis otherwise. Straight superheroes. So next up is, we got a couple of invisible kids here. So the first one is Lyle Norg, the first invisible kid. I said this in the contemporary era. The book is simply called Invisible. It stars Lyle, a teenage genius who happens to be gay as was, was often assumed of the character uh, later on. No invisibility serum, nothing like that. Rather, he's using his intelligence to help the LGBTQ plus community against those who would hurt it from behind the scenes. So he's an activist. Uh, he's put his mind to accumulating money through the stock market, developing new technologies, and he's at the center of a secret network of operatives, kind of like Oracle, but with a more specific agenda. But can he keep all these balls in the air when he's also got to attend college at a younger age than most because he was so brainy? And come out to his parents. He's got all this life to, to also take care of. This is a book about being seen, ironically, uh, starring a character that has... Marvel-style personal problems. So, that you know, you, you get that, that feeling, that Spider-Man vibe from this book. That's so interesting because I took both of these entries, Invisible Kid 1 and Invisible Kid 2, and called it The Invisible Army. And it was also about the LGBTQ community and basically being like LGBTQIA freedom fighters. And then literally going in and creating, like, because you don't see a lot of that representation I mean, you are seeing more representation, but that idea that this is literally an army of people who have, for the longest time, either been invisible or have been bullied to the point of feeling small. And this is, I thought, a really good opportunity. I, I like this. I like that we're kind of on the same page with that. Mm -hmm. So you you made the the two characters in the same book. Yes, I did. Yeah, for my Invisible Kid two, and that one is called Invisible Kid. It's the same metaphor but with a different minority, you know, even as design. I think Jacques Focard uh, seems to me like an obvious reference to Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. I don't know, I was in, in Paul Levitz's head when he created him, but I feel like that's, that, that's a connection that's easy to make. So I keep going in that vein. So this Invisible Kid, it's about an immigrant kid from the Côte d'Ivoire, uh, a refugee after some fictional disaster happens on the Ivory Coast. 
It's also in the present day. He and his parents aren't exactly welcomed with open arms in their new American home, and Jacques uh, wishes he were invisible, and his prayers are mysteriously answered. You know, this would be addressed, the reason why, over the course of that first year. And he doesn't turn transparent or anything, it's just that people stop noticing him, or they don't remember him. And maybe that's just as bad. It's just another form of discrimination. It's, it's a met, uh, you know, a metaphor for microaggressions and so forth. So this is a very small-scale superhero book for me. At first, he's just protecting himself and his family, but it grows to the neighborhood and maybe even beyond over time, especially once we find out that some entity has more or less taken him out of human perception for some greater purpose. So it's uh, coming of age. But it's also a refugee story, which we don't get a lot of. Yeah, that's awesome. It's sort of very different than I was my take, but I, I love that. So maybe I'll just uh, throw it back to you then. I Vampire. We Vampires. Oh, We Vampires. Yeah, okay. So uh, I like that idea. So this is sort of like an opportunity to sort of – you don't really see a lot of vampires in DC comics. And so this is an opportunity to take Andrew Bennett and um, sort of rewrite – a bit of the DC horror vampire verse in sort of a more tales from the crypt kind of tomb of Dracula style blade style, Marvel chiller sort of thing is really reestablish what vampires are like in the DC universe with a, a deep mythology. I think Andrew Bennett becomes your Dracula in a way and then sort of do it in a Marv Wolfman, Gene Colan style, but with a very different, a more robust history. It it seems like this is one aspect of DC Comics where they have sort of, I don't know if dropped the balls right, but sometimes you'll see Dracula show up in the DC Comics, whether it's like Red Rain, Batman, or whatever. But what you don't see is like this deep vampire lore. And We Vampires is that opportunity to really talk about and show how vampirism has affected every aspect of DC Comics. I mean, they've done it some, from time to time. But it's only ever like in iVampire or something. You know, it doesn't really spread to other books. Right. And I didn't go very far afield for this because one of the better New 52 reimaginings for me, I thought, was was iVampire. The sexy, often shirtless vampire Andrew Bennett fighting hordes of undead led by his former lover Mary – by um, Josh Fialkov and, and uh, Sorrentino, right? Right. And I know Joshua was happy with the ending of the series, but this is still the take I would resurrect, basically. Just built to last longer. So first, there would be more flashbacks to the past and Bennett's life or unlife across the centuries to give context and build that mythology that you were talking about. And give context to other immortal or long-lived foes as well. So it's not just vampires in my case. Mary would be a more mysterious presence, a recurring frenemy, but not the enemy that once she's beaten, the series comes to an end. So I'm, I'm just putting a little more structure for for a long-lasting series, like less of a single story, and, and so we can do more, more arcs maybe. But it's essentially the new 52i vampire, which... Again, I quite liked. Throwing it over to you for Iron Wolf. Well, this is connected because the vampires in iVampire have their origin on another world. That's what I've decided. So the original infection came from space. To defend against vampires in the ancient times, a Lithuanian wizard grew a forest of trees with special properties. First, the wood has a strange effect on gravity, can overcome it, also kind of attract things to itself. And second, it was very good at killing vampires. 
So this is the origin of the wooden stake in vampire lore. Came from this, this idea, this forest. So in the modern age, the man who would become Iron Wolf finds the forest, builds a ship out of it, a ship that can somehow take him to the stars and retain an atmosphere. The vampires out there are gigantic. I'm st really stealing a page from Doctor Who here, shamelessly. And the ship is pointy and perfect to ram itself into the hearts of evil creatures. Iron Wolf, whose real name is probably Wolf Irons or something, didn't expect this turn of events. He was just making a flying boat, but he hit orbit, and then the ship started taking him to vampire hotspots. So there's vampire action in space. So this is a swashbuckling vampire hunting adventure comic strip in space. Iron Wolf's legend keeps growing, and so does his crew. He's picking up various uh, people from planets and ships that he helps. That's what I'm doing with this. Oh, that's interesting. I went, do you remember the cartoon Ulysses 31? Of course, that, that played a lot in, uh, in French. So I went with something very similar, like Iron Wolf is basically navigating this gigantic fleet of pirate ships through outer space, and he is actually cursed by some pre-Chthonic god because of, of breaking some unknown treaty. And he is literally sort of like Beta Ray Bill, and um, he's literally the sole survivor, and he and his like robot companion that's built into the ship have to battle the evil empress Erica Hernandez. And that is basically it. She is the one who sort of her behavior sort of created this impetus that, you know, fell behind Iron Wolf. And now he has to find her in the mirror of space to break the curse and free all the people. A little bit Ulysses 31, a little bit Captain Harlock. Yeah, a little bit Captain Harlock, a little bit Ulysses 31. But yeah, that idea of really exploring like the loneliness of space and sort of the rejection and the sort of self-loathing that it comes when you're in deep isolation. So in a way, like we can pull in a lot of the same feelings of social isolationism that people are feeling right now um, because of COVID. I really like that theme. Mm. We did Infinity Inc., but is Jade connected to your Infinity Inc. series? She is not connected to my Infinity Inc. series. She has her own book. <laughs> what's it like? <laughs> oh, oh, you mean like, what's it like? I was, no, she has her own book. That's it. She's great. No, uh, what I really wanted to do was with Jade do something that made her feel like she was a celebrity. So in a way, change her powers a little bit. So they are she's like a starlet. She's a modern day starlet. So she's like the I don't know if Britney Spears is the right analog, but somebody like that sort of like a super, super teeny bopper kind of uh, like Taylor Swift in a way. She's like the Taylor Swift of the superhero set. But her powers are when people stop believing in her, her powers subside. So she really gets her willpower. Like her self-esteem is so damaged by years of superheroing that uh, her willpower, her self-esteem are what fuel her powers. But she only gets that because of other people believing in her. So she's beset by all sorts of, like, in a way, mental illness, in a way, dealing with college pressures, in a way, dealing with being incredibly popular and not really knowing how to manage that anxiety. 
So that was sort of my take is, is that she's like the starlet of the superhero set. Like she is the Taylor Swift of superheroes. Feels very contemporary. And for me, I know that, you know, Jade is an Infinity Inc. And I've got that book going on. Uh, but that's Earth Prime fake Jade. Unlike the other Infinitors, there is also a real Jade. She is, in my case, Jade Lantern, the protector of Sector 2814, and a living power battery born of the Golden Age Green Lantern. So I haven't changed really much in terms of details. The Guardians couldn't just pass up that deal, so they gave her a badge. They relegated Hal, John, Guy, and Kyle to outer space duties, as chronicled in books edited by someone else, <laughs> well, I imagine. Given the selection of characters we pulled, uh, she's the most classically superheroic book in my line, inheriting all of the homegrown and invading Green Lantern villains, but keeping her essential supporting cast, which would be her adoptive parents, her brother Obsidian, who sometimes comes out of retirement to help. He got married, and his husband really isn't too keen on this life uh, and uh, an older Alan Scott wanting to be in her life and sort of the difficult dynamic that comes with that. We make it so she really didn't know about her parentage. So it's new to her. And it's like this, the biological parent that is coming into her life and she's not sure how to handle it. So my take is very classic. And uh, in this line where there are a lot of weird angles to take, I feel like I needed a couple books that were you know, more more mainstream. And then what are you doing about uh, Jason Bard? Well, in his case, he's a detective. So I'm calling this book All-Star Detective. And it's an anthology featuring DC's many detective characters. Uh, maybe occasionally someone like Elongated Man, but really, you know, Captain Compass, Roy Raymond, TV detective, these guys. The format right. is a lot like the New 52's All-Star Western with a main continuing story and then backups of various, various lengths. The main story is Jason Bards. He's an ethical PI who was wounded during his tour in Afghanistan. He has a soft spot for fellow veterans. He's always helping them out of jams, clearing them from frame-ups, very often pro bono. It takes place in Gotham City. Jim and Barbara Gordon do feature as friends of the family, but uh, these are more grounded stories than Batman's, even though they take place in his shadow. The backups could be of any tone. They could use any tone there, but they can also intersect with Jason's story. On occasion, so we might have like a big detective crossover. Right. Interesting. So I went sort of differently with this. I, I like the idea of All Star Detective. I did not think of that. I was just going to put him in Detective Comics. That's a good idea too. I mean, the name is there. Yeah. Yeah, the, the name is there. I was going to put him in Detective Comics and then turn his stories in a way. Every issue is a framing device of how some hero or supervillain died. And he's sort of like anatomy project. The framing device is he's, he's got the body and then he's going through the body. And every time he's looking at something new, he's discovering more. He's like working his brain in a Sherlock Holmes kind of way of how this character died. And at the end, he'll solve it. So like almost like reverse Columbo. So we see the body uh, and we see Jason Bart doing his things. But in a way, he's a. Uh, superhero forensic investigator. Oh, I like that. I mean, they must exist. <laughs> it's not mentioned, but they must exist. Okay, left turn from a character like Jason Bard, Gem, son of Saturn. Oh, well, I, I wanted to do something totally different. So I decided to make Gem truly outrageous. And so he's <laughs> hanging out with the holograms on a tour. Uh, he's got like a little starlight earrings that say Showtime Synergy, and he changes from Gem into Jerrica Bartlett. Jerrica Bartlett! 
Lawsuit pending. No, uh, what I decided to do with this, you know, it's really interesting because we've seen um, Manhunter from Mars and we've seen Gem Son of Saturn. So what I thought would be really interesting to do is uh, in this book, Gem trying to create a pantheon of Venusians and Martians and Plutonians to uh, stop a galactic threat. So he is responsible for, in a way, creating a galactic pantheon. And so that would really be his his struggle is to navigate his own impulses as uh, sort of this crazy alien, uh, his own animosity towards uh, Martian Manhunter while trying to end all the other cultural warfare differences like who is the earth liaison that they would represent and who is the venusian leader that would represent them the mercurian one and the jovian one so it was an opportunity to sort of really think about what that might look like that's sort of it is gemstone of saturn is literally creating a galactic pantheon hmm. to, uh, to oh to stop the sun eater oh yeah of course that's a worthy threat but you mentioned the martian manhunter of course I mean, there's a lot of similarities. Originally, Greg Potter apparently had written Jem as uh, Martian Manhunter's cousin, and he had to change it when John Jones made a return in JLA. It's been like a character that hadn't been really used for a while. Uh, and a lot of people have since tried to restore this connection between them, making Saturnians a slave race engineered by the Martians, stuff like that. Uh, since I'm rebooting things anyway, I did wonder, could I do something similar? Well... I have and I have it. There's a link, but at the same time, the elephant in the room, like you took a really pulpy take where all the planets in the system can be inhabited. I went more scientific, I guess, uh, because humanoids couldn't possibly live on Saturn is the thing. So a lot of people have, have complained about this, about the, you know, such a character. It's just not that kind of place. But what if life did evolve there, except it was crystalline in nature, sentient resonating gems so somehow one such gem finds its way to earth via a spacefaring villain who is using it to i don't know shoot laser beams and such the jla shows up to defeat we're gonna say kanjar ro you know it's someone like that and the martian manhunter senses an intelligence from the confiscated gemstone he contacts it telepathically it mimics him it grows a whole body and personality vaguely based on the manhunters what follows then is a fish out of water story in which gem means to find a way to get back to saturn but gets distracted by crime fighting along the way he has like these echoes of of merchant manhunter in him i guess and by the time he gets to his planet he knows his body and his personality and all his relationships are going to be destroyed as he resumes his former life so he has a big decision to make. Cliffhanger towards year two, I guess. <laughs> That's awesome. So what do you plan on doing with uh, Jennifer Morgan? Are they going to secretly date? No, they're not uh, parented at all. I'm doing this in the popular subgenre of fantastical schools for gifted youngsters. I bring you yeah, Scartaris Academy. <laughs> oh. So you've got 13-year-old got Jennifer Morgan enrolled in this school uh, by her dad, Travis Morgan, and her stepmom, Tara. So with all that entails. And the series playfully reimagines various warlord characters as teens or teachers in a setting where kids learn about magic and swordplay according to their specializations. So the cast of kids would include Mashist, Tinder, Shakira, Mariah, while teachers could include Mongo Ironhand, Rostov, and even Deimos himself. Big eyes, big fun, humor, coming of age. So I went a different route. 
obviously. What I decided to do was do The Legacy of Warlord. And Travis and Deimos are gone from Skintaris. And so we haven't had a Warlord book in a long time. And I think it's really nice to then introduce people to this sort of Pellucidar-style Edgar Rice Burroughs kind of world. So really doing the legacy of Warlord and then using Jennifer Morgan as our POV character as she's trying to deal with the dwindling population of Skitaris and trying to figure out how this civilization is going to prosper after a war that has taken everybody. Does she recruit people? Does she do some sort of, you know, travel log? How does she rebuild? And that's, that's really it. Is, is her civilization even worth saving? You know, and, and if she doesn't save it, how do they integrate Skitaris in another civilization? So it's, it's in a way it's, it sort of deals with the end times, the end of civilization and deciding it's sort of a reverse gentrification is they, they have very, very little left. So what is that? And so it really sort of follows Jennifer Morgan as she steps into the leadership role that Travis Morgan had and determines what the future of her civilization is. And Warlord is an old enough property that, yeah, we can be on the next generation now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about Jericho, not my favorite. Jericho. Man, uh, he's kind of a challenge. But what I would probably do with Jericho, I do sort of like the more non-binary take of the character in Titans. Sure. Uh, it's hard to not think of Jericho as a villain right now because he's been a villain for, I don't know, a long time. At least a dozen years in the current comics. So it's hard for me to not think of him as evil or possessed. Um, it's also very difficult, I think, to have a character who communicates in sign language, who does not have some sort of partner to help, you know, the readers just sort of understand and communicate. So ultimately, what I would do is make this a Ravagers book and put Jericho with Rose Wilson, because she's called Ravager, yeah. and have this be a tale of redemption where they are redeeming or trying to reconcile the past of Deathstroke their father, and really try to come to a place of reconciliation with the hero he is versus the villain he is. And are they cursed by the sins of the father, or is there an opportunity for redemption? Both Ravager and Jericho have some horrible, horrible, horrible legacies of uh, atrocities committed in their names. But is there is there an opportunity for redemption for them? So in a way, it's kind of nature versus nurture. Like, are they... Who are they, and you know what does this really say about their future? Mm. Well, Rose is the only character in the family that I've ever cared about. So you you found an angle where I might find this uh, title interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Deathstroke is incredibly complicated, really problematic as a character, especially because of his relationship with Terra. Right. So it's really important to sort of untangle that in an era of. Uh, Me Too in an era of Jeffrey Epstein and trafficking and stuff. And I think that there is an opportunity for redemption for both characters. But I think it, it's really important to obviously have a character like Jericho, but to really snazz him up a bit and really make him come into more of his own. I've um, I've sort of avoided the character in a way because I have a tendency to, to, 
to more completely re- reimagine characters I dislike. And uh, Jericho is definitely one of these. I never liked the costume. The power lent itself to becoming a very creepy villain later, as happened. But I also didn't want to take away a hero from uh, differently abled readers. So that's really all I'm keeping, in a way. And LG- L- LGBT readers, too, also, right? I, I'm making even a triple threat in terms of diversity. You'll see the book actually alludes to the biblical city of Jericho. So you've got a mysterious supervillain, mysterious, so readers can have fun speculating in a Leviathan kind of way. That villain has walled up a section of Gateway City, where Wonder Woman used to hang out. And no matter what superheroes do, they can't get inside the tyrant's fiefdom. Though it seems villains can be invited in and becomes a sanctuary for them, and they can become like they become cabinet members in that government. So the book shows us the political intrigue among the villains. So there's like a Suicide Squad, Secret Six vibe, maybe, but also what it means to be a normal person living in the inner city that is dubbed Jericho. Our protagonist is Joshua, a deaf mute young man of Arab descent, used as a servant by you know in the villain's citadel, but. It is suggested, intimated, that he has a destiny that matches his biblical name, basically, to bring down the walls of Jericho. The underground certainly thinks that he can do that, but is it really by, you know, blowing a horn, which, you know, playing an instrument might be difficult for the hearing impaired? Or is the prophecy buried in metaphor? And so there's this whole thing going on where he's your point of view character, but you're seeing the underground and you're seeing real life and you're seeing the the like the superpowered villains through that character's eyes. That's cool. So sorry, Joseph Wilson Wade Wil- Wilson Wade or whatever his name is. <laughs> I I really uh like this character is very very different, but I've kept some of the elements and certainly the name. So what what did you uh end up doing for the jester? Ah, well, the key phrase here is that he is a direct descendant of a court jester. That's what it says in the entry. Right. Yeah, and I think people know how much I love heroes with legacies or in reverse dynasties. Depends which end you're at. Anyway, the chance to tell stories, not just of this jester, but of those who came before, stretching out to the Middle Ages where the first jester pulled the Robin Hood and started righting wrongs committed by the aristocrat he worked for. So we get to explore different types of clowns and how they can be turned into costume vigilantes over the centuries. Chuck Lane, this guy, himself is a fun-loving hero who uses his fists and quips to take down criminals, like a comedy version of The Shadow, I imagine. He comes in with a crazy laugh, and the series doesn't really take itself too seriously, so I want crooks to just crumble under the pressure of his barbed wit. A good blow to the ego, destroying them, you know, in, in a way that's uh, more extreme than what you see in, in strips like Spider-Man. That's awesome. There's an old-time radio show, I think only two episodes of it exist, called The Bishop and the Gargoyle. Okay. And it is about a bishop and a death row inmate that he saved, and they travel around solving crimes. It is very obscure, incredibly arcane, so I think you know where I'm going with this. He was a court jester. So he was friends with the demon. So it's the demon and the jester, and they go around in DC Camelot solving crimes while the modern-day jester, Chuck Lane, and Jason Blood go around solving crimes. So it's connected. Yeah, well, I love the demon. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting because I think you need to counterbalance the demon with something that is a little less grim. And this idea that this this guy is a jester, I mean, like, 
how often is he going to be misconstrued for the Joker? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. but you, there, there's, I think there needs to be some levity because Jason blood stuff can get dark. Um, so I think that there was a real opportunity to do something like that where you're balancing this real grotesque character and the serious character in Jason blood with something that's just a little bit more playful. Okay. Well, good. We're here. Here's Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> We're stuck with the, the rest of these entries have a Johnny or no, not, not all of them, but close. So would you do the honors and start us off with Johnny cloud, man? I, you're really going to not like me for this. No, you put all the Johnnies <laughs> together. I did in a book called Johnny DC. Well, that's clever. <laughs> so in this, <laughs> don't you, you weren't going to like, me. well, you're, you're going <laughs> to have fun it, listening to all my pitches back to back. Well, in a way, this is they are actually brought together by the biblical John the Baptist, and they have to solve like literally crimes, sort of like Indiana Jones style crimes. They're all driven by their biblical names to, um, you know, by John the Baptist to like find the Spear of Destiny and the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Vonach manuscript, and other things like that. So, really, sort of they're brought together by this this ancient power to solve all of these Christian-based pre-Chthonic crimes. And their arch enemy is Simon Magus, who was uh, the mage who uh, fought Jesus Christ. And, and there's a lot of like very Christian-y kind of stuff in there. But it, ultimately, it's like Indiana Jones. I mean, you've got all the pulp characters. It's you've got your pilot. You've got your PI. You've got your esoteric investigator. You know, so all of it is just this opportunity to to explore all the different genres of DC with these characters. You've got your superhero and Johnny Quick, you know, Johnny Perils, your Kolchak, the Night Stalker. So all of these genres that we seldom get the chance to play with is what we get to highlight. And we get to highlight some of that Phantom Stranger pre-Christianity kind of stuff that is so prevalent in some of those early DC stories. So you get all the cowboys and you get all the weird justice society, Johnny Thunder. So that was basically in a giant book called Johnny DC. Obviously I went for a, a different series for each. I was desperately trying not to have a book called Johnny something like every book be called Johnny something. So Johnny cloud is the headliner of all-star war stories. It's another genre ah, specific anthology. Man, so you're so smart. Well, I've, I've done this before. <laughs> so, it's, <laughs> so it's a similar format. The backups feature various war heroes, most often losers. Well, I mean, you know, from that group. Johnny is a Native American aviation ace, as before. Uh, but he got into the military as a code talker. I don't know if people remember that movie with yeah. Nick Cage, Wind Talkers. Yeah. But this is real. In World War II, the Army had Native soldiers use Navajo to communicate between positions, which was basically untranslatable undecipherable to the enemy. But Johnny soon showed another Navajo trait, a fearlessness when it comes to heights. And after taking over as a pilot for a plane that was going down, he showed incredible aptitude with flight, even untrained. The series starts with Johnny already in the cockpit, but we often flash back to how he joined up, revealing how he got there, all of this stuff. The story has uh, the feel of a freeform memoir and the action highlights aerial freedom and great stunts. I've said this about other native characters, but finding a native writer who can weave in some authenticity would be an important part of getting this book off the ground. And of course, there's also the backups. So that's my Johnny Cloud. Johnny Quick, I would say before Wally West, before Barry Allen, there was 
Johnny Quick. So I'm setting this in 1960 after the government has disbanded the JSA. Johnny Chambers is living the suburban dream with wife Libby and toddler daughter Jesse, a retired superhero. He's often traveling because he's a news he's still a news correspondent. Or is he? I would say superheroes didn't go away, they just went underground. So the, the sees all, tells all news that he works for is really a front for a U.S. intelligence agency. And Johnny's a super spy, a super fast super spy, who's uh, too quick to be seen by the commies or whoever. And in a Mr. and Mrs. Smith twist, Libby is also working for an intelligence agency as Liberty Bell. And eventually, they'll kind of notice <laughs> that this is happening. And then we have little Jessie, who becomes a little tornado when she discovers the speed formula. So I wanted this to be a spoof of... 50s, early 60s culture, James Bond meets, well, probably more Leave it to Beaver than Mad Men, if, if you get the tone here. So that's Johnny Quick. Johnny Peril, I'm making a Jenny Peril to mix things up. She's based on the drawing of, well, I'm guessing that's Johnny's psychic partner, Rose, in The Serpent. So Jenny is an Asian-American woman who has taken back the term Yellow Peril, as it were. Okay. Not unlike uh, Randall Park's band Hello Peril, which you can see in the movie uh, Always Be My Babies. Actually, their songs are quite clever. Anyway, Jenny is a danger magnet. Wherever she goes, bad stuff, weird stuff all happen, but she always makes it out alive somehow. She found this out really early in life, and she's dedicated herself to helping people so they don't perish in the destruction she can't help but leave in her wake. So if she visits a volcano, it's going to blow. If she goes to Tibet, Yeti attacks. So one of the things that we'll see her do in the series is find, a, uh, find villain HQs and visit them so that her bad luck can be visited on wrongdoers on purpose. So this is all played with tongue firmly in cheek. And uh, high-octane action. This is just supposed to be a very fun book. No holds barred. Jenny Peril. That sounds great. Johnny Thunder and his amazing Thunderbolt, or whatever the name of the strip was. So this is the the classic Johnny Thunder. This is the one that, that kind of sounds like your book, sort of. Yeah. Because I call it Crisis on Infinite Johnnies. <laughs> and uh, it's comedy, of course. It's an insane run around the multiverse starring the Earth 2 Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt meeting and collaborating and or fighting other Johnnies and Thunderbolts from across every reality, trying to fix things, but probably making them worse. There are only a few known Johnny Thunders, you know, that, and they'll appear, the ones that have their own series here, uh, the Kingdom Come one, for example. And then we're also creating a bunch of new ones. An anti-Johnny from Quard, who's causing the crisis. An evil Earth-3 Johnny. A comics reader Johnny from Earth Prime. A Thunderbolt from the Fifth Dimension, who gets pestered by a mundane Johnny. Uh, Elseworlds Johnnies. Gothic Johnny. Arabian Nights Johnny. Ice Age Johnny. The sky's the limit, and those skies are perpetually red. Okay. But we're not done. Johnny Thunder the Cowboy. Uh, so, uh, it's my third and last anthology, it's, uh, the return of all-star Western. It stars the chronologically first Johnny Thunder and his horse Thunderbolt in the lead feature and other Western stars in the backups. Johnny is a Western Clark Kent hiding his identity with eyeglasses and using education as the best way to tame the West. But when push comes to shove, it's time to take the glasses off put on the gun belt. So nothing fancy. I just want to build up this hero, have a good supporting cast with some dastardly recurring villains. Essentially, Johnny has his own Lois and Jimmy and his Professor Hamilton and his Luthor. So we get to know Mesa City as well as we do Metropolis and Gotham in the long run. The backups, 
then can range further and wider through the Western genre. You know, there are plenty of properties out there. So that's my third and last anthology series. Did you do something different with Jonah Hex? So I was going to do Jonah Hex in a modern era, but I realized that this, that might be too similar to Jean, Gina Hex or whatever her name is in the current um, Young Justice book. Right. Jenny Hex, is it? Je- Jenny Hex, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually went back and did <laughs> Salem Witch Trials, Jonah Hex. Okay. Uh, so I actually went back to sort of a wandering pilgrim, like going with John Wayne there. More Solomon Kane, honestly, who goes around hunting witch hunters. So I just called it Hexed. Oh. And it's literally the, the grandparents of Jonah Hex, literally. And they have the same kind of facial scarring. A little bit different, but yeah, it's called Hexed, and he literally, the legacy of Jonah Hex. This is a character that was also brought forward into the Mad Max era. Yeah, with Hex, which is a messed up book. Uh, yeah, so I had choices. So I was like, well, what do I do? And I've just had an all-star Western book. Am I going to do two Western books? I decided that yes. Tonally, if Johnny Thunder is Superman, Jonah Hex is the Batman of the West. Uh, so I don't see any reason to change anything from the way the character has been handled in the last 15 years by Gray and Palmiotti. Uh, he's a nomadic anti-hero traveling through the 19th century DC universe. In the New 52, they sort of turned it into an Eastern and set much of the action in Gotham City. I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I want to see the early days of other DC-centric towns. I even want him going on voyages outside the U.S., uh, build up the links to later DC history without ever going into superhero territory, though I'm fine with the occasional mystical element, as in the uh, two-gun mojo era. Right. Yeah. Hex's sass is going to take the stuffing out of any fanciful element anyway. So I think we can have fun with that. I think there's always room for Jonah Hex in a line, even if you're going to do another Western book. It's just going to be the one that's going to be a little crazier. So that's my Jonah Hex. And I imagine you did... I'm calling her Joni Thunder. I'm not sure how to pronounce Johnny. Yeah, I call it Joni Thunder as well. She's also in that big Johnny book, or does she have her own series? She has her own series that is much more like a fashion-forward version of designing women. Okay. So I thought it would be kind of fun to do, like, basically, like, a insurance adjuster, sort of like uh, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, the old radio show. She is a freelance insurance investigator that is specializes in high crimes for the, like the fashion industry. So she's literally like stolen minks, you know, uh, missing shipments. She's literally there in her like highfalutin jacket and stuff traveling around. And then she, when danger calls, she transforms into Thunderbolt. I like that setting because we don't see a lot of that. So it's always nice to have a, so I imagine it's going to be much more investigative focus. So uh, it's sort of like the idea that she is primarily an investigator. But when there is uncertain danger, she can then channel her. She's not like super superhero, but she does have this ability to transform into Thunderbolt to get out of like really, really, really dangerous situations. But I imagine it's 80% investigation and then 20% like supernatural force possesses her and gives her the ability to escape different scrapes and stuff. But yeah, I really wanted this kind of roving detective, kind of like Remington Steel or Silk Stockings, but with a high fashion element. That's cool. To set it apart, I'd like I, I didn't want another Johnny 
title, so I'm just simply calling it AKA Thunderbolt. And Joni Thunder is a private eye who might normally have fit in All-Star Detective, so that's another book that she could have been in as a kind of Hollywood confidential strip. But she can release a woman made of lightning from her body, so... Okay, she's got her own series. I want Johnny to be a real cinephile. So I'm still using that Hollywood bit. Right. And she's inspired by all those noir films to become a PI. And she's sort of affecting a hard-talking dame persona out in the field. This is like a put-on. Uh, the Thunderbolt has Inca origins, according to this. And so it's an avenging spirit from that culture. So here I want a completely different personality when it's Thunderbolt. A personality that doesn't necessarily do what Joni wants and uh, puts the detective in danger because her body is left unconscious while the Thunderbolt is out. She's projecting it out. We have the opportunity to slowly tell the origin of the Thunderbolt itself and its integration into Joni's identity. There's a kind of Art Deco element here, I feel, to the Thunderbolt that links it to Fritz Lang's Metropolis. And so there maybe there's a mystery that leads us to strange origins for Joni as well. The writer and artist of this would continually be referencing old movies in this way. You'd keep seeing these sort of references and Easter eggs throughout, and that's built in a book for fans of, you know, the golden age of Hollywood. Wow, that's awesome. That was pretty quick. Well, we're not done because we can add another series. Right. Right. Did you? I did consider adding another series. And I thought to myself, self, there are a lot of Joker books. So we, we got to s- skip that. I know the market's going to demand that. But instead, I went, <laughs> I went in Justice Gang of the World. Okay. Because I think that you can incorporate Joker in there if you want. But here's this opportunity to do characters like Kronos and Mirror Master and Poison Ivy, Shadow Thief. Characters who don't generally get a lot of spotlight and do something really, really interesting. And what I was going to do was pivot them against the Joker. So here the Joker has literally ruined their life of crime. So they're literally after the Joker, seeking him down to make him pay for all the times he has wronged them. So, But it's very them-focused. In a way, they're kind of like the Thunderbolts. Are we... <laughs> Like, what is the lesser of two evils? So they're the lesser evil going out after the greater evil. And I I call the book Necessary Evil. Oh, okay. So villain versus villain. Yes. I, I didn't want to use the Joker either, but I could not resist the pull of the IP. So I have a Joker series, you know, but it's not him. It's not the Clown Prince of Crime. Rather, it's the Tangent Comics Joker. And I'm Oh, very clever. I'm inserting her into the mainstream DCU. Uh, I know it got a bit complicated. Uh, there, like, there were three people in the one identity. I'm simplifying it. Whoever the Joker is, she is also a descendant of the same court jester that the Jester is. She's also part of that legacy. And in her case, she uses a lot of jokey gimmicks to fight crime, although she's less obviously on the side of the law. So this is set in Atlanta. It was New Atlantis in the comics, so it kind of sounds the same. The series shows her anarchic spirit in action against, well, overreaching cops, lazy news media, corrupt politicians. I think Atlanta can supply all of that. Sorry, Atlanta. But who would believe that a shy college student who has trouble organizing her life would also be this extroverted harlequin of justice? Uh, She was created by Carl Kiesel. So if you read his work, you know his tone. That's exactly what I'm going for. This is like a fun action series with a lot of humor to it. That's awesome. And that's my final book. So, finally, let's follow that tradition started by Shag way back in episode three. 
We only have enough money to buy one series from the other person's line. Which one will it be? Do, 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 do. I think your take on The Invisible Kid, Invisible, even though it's similar to mine, I think is more personal than mine. So I think that that's, that would be the book I would gravitate towards. So for me, oh, I had a couple of front runners. Iron Wolf came very close. Ultimately, my love of uh, One and Dones and of Obscure Characters makes me gravitate to Inferior 52. Oh, nice. <laughs> and it's actually going to cost me more because it's a weekly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But since you are a comics writer... Is there a book in here that, as editor, you would also consider be writer-editor in your line? So if there were a book here that I, that speaks to all of my pulp love, it would probably be The Legacy of Warlord. Yeah. Like, that I would do. We're at the end. Dear listeners, it's time to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. Tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? If you were in charge, what series would you offer using these characters? And if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. I hope you had fun, David. I did. This was a lot of fun. And maybe uh, you want to tell people where they can find what, what you're working on that is actually real and not a thought experiment. All right. So I'm currently working on The Only Living Girl for Paper Cuts with artist Steve Ellis who was just recently on a Let's Roll podcast. And then I'm working on a secret project, video game project I can't talk about yet. Okay. Then we're working on maybe some role-playing game, something or others that I also can't talk about. But Own Living Girl is my primary project. It is available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local comic shop. Pick it up. Uh, it's a lot of fun. That's right. So thanks for trying the experiment with me. Until next time, who's editing? We are. I had to make you scared of the Joker again. Mm -hmm. He turned into a funny guy in a clown suit. Mm -hmm. And I had to make him the, a serial killer mm -hmm. whose laughter would, would scare the crap out of you instead of making you think that he was just a buffoon. <laughs>